Hello, I'm Don Mockholtz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 116, for the week of March 23rd, 2022. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, March 23rd, the moon is about 70% full in the morning sky and, and rising around midnight. This will give us a few hours of dark skies each evening to go after the faint stuff. By next Tuesday, March 29th, the moon will be a slim crescent in the morning sky. The crescent moon makes a nice pattern with Venus, Mars, and Saturn on Monday morning, March 28th. This is rather unusual, and you might want to set the alarm to get up early next Monday morning to see this. All four objects, the Moon, Venus, Mars, and Saturn, will fit within an 8-degree circle. Wait, there's more. Comet 22P Koph, magnitude 11, will be near Venus. And the Moon will be about 4 degrees north of globular cluster M30. On the following morning, March 29th, the planet Venus passes about 2 degrees north of Saturn. I actually write this podcast in advance. You might say, Don, you really write this stuff? (laughs) Yes, I do. And for much of the first year, it took about 10 hours for each podcast. Now it's down to about six hours a week. So as I write this, it is Sunday evening, March 20th at 9.31 p.m., My hands and feet are cold because I've just come back into the house after doing the first half of a Messe Marathon. This is an attempt to see most or all of the 110 galaxies, clusters, and nebula in the catalog compiled by Charles Messier more than 200 years ago. This is the season when most can be seen in one night. And last week in this podcast, I suggested that you try something crazy and see how it goes when the moon is only three days past full, as it is tonight. The sky was 90% cloudy when I stepped outside. It it rained just two hours before. As I set up my 10-inch reflector, the clouds moving mostly north to south began to clear, especially in the western sky. I saw 66 objects, with M74 being the most difficult. Now, that is the most number that can be seen by this time. The moon will rise within minutes, and it will be 90% full. I'll do some more writing tonight, then to bed about 10.30 and get up about 3.40 to start at 4 a.m. and find objects until twilight at about 5.30. It is likely that the last object, M30, will not be visible. 
is still too close to the sun to be seen from this latitude, which is 35 degrees north. And the weather forecast for tomorrow morning is for clouds to start to come in about 3 a.m. So we will see what we will see. At the end of this podcast, I'll tell you how it went. Last week, I was interviewed on an astronomy podcast, and it is now available for you to listen to. The podcast is called The Actual Astronomy Podcast. It's a good name. And it is episode number 204. It's hosted by two amateur astronomers in Canada, Chris and Shane. They discuss visual astronomy, looking at things in the night sky. Their podcasts are informative, entertaining, and very good. They typically come out about twice a week. Once again, it is called the Actual Astronomy Podcast, and they interviewed me in episode 204. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week? which for our purposes begins Wednesday, March 23rd through Tuesday, March 29th. It depends upon where you are located. Hey, in 10 years or less, I will not be having this segment in my podcast. That is because by the year 2030, the International Space Station is expected to have entered our Earth's atmosphere and landed in the ocean. The week that it does, I will say, will you be able to see the International Space Station this week? You will if you are a fish in the Pacific Ocean. But this week, most of us can see it, so see it while you can. This week, we have seven zones. All you need to know is your latitude. Two areas will not see it. North of 64 degrees north and a big equatorial area between 34 degrees north and 20 degrees south. You will not be able to see it this week. Between 38 degrees north and 64 degrees north, and that's many of you, the International Space Station will be in your evening sky for the whole week, sometimes visible twice per night. A small band between 34 and 38 degrees north will see the ISS only near the end of the week. In the southern hemisphere, between 20 and 33 degrees south, it will be in your sky for only the first part of the week. And finally, between 33 and 50 degrees south, it will be in your morning sky all week long. To determine where you can see it, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. With the moon leaving the evening sky, let's look at a comet. It is plotted on podcast 116, map 1, and for more accurate positions, as it does move in relation to the stars, Go to heavens-above.com and click on Comets. This comet is Comet 19P Borley. It's high in the western sky as darkness descends. It's at magnitude 10.5 and it is getting dimmer. Next, Next week we'll add two morning comets to our mix. This year, 
I am discussing the discovery of each of my 12 comets near the time of the year that they were discovered. Last week, it was one I found on March 23, 2010. This week, it is the one that I found on March 31, 1992. 1992, that's like 30 years ago. Most people did not even have cell phones back then. Here's the story. Life can pretty much go on without much happening. And then, all in one week, several life-changing and unrelated events take place. This is a story about one of those weeks. A bit of background. We had moved from San Jose, California to Colfax, California in October 1990. Our move, which was well-planned, was for three reasons. First, we wanted to be able to live on one income so that Laura could stay home and take care of the kids. Secondly, we wanted to live in a less crowded and less congested area, and one without major earthquakes. Thirdly, we wanted to live at a location from which I could hunt for comets from the backyard. That move of 180 miles produced financial strain on our family as we had to adjust from two large incomes to one small salary. The foothills of the Sierra Nevada range is a nice place to live, but not an easy place to work. After a short term at an optical lab in Sacramento and five weeks of very busy unemployment where I contacted over a hundred companies looking for work, I accepted in March 1991 a manager's position at Jim Otto's Burger King restaurant in Auburn, California. You might wonder, why would someone, me, with a two-year AA degree in general education and a two-year AS degree in laser technology work at a fast food restaurant? The main company that I wanted to work for, a company called Coherent, and that's the reason we moved to Colfax, was not hiring at the time. In fact, it would be four years before I got a job there. And I needed job stability, and this job provided that. At that time, some companies were laying off people and closing. We did have a minor recession in 1991 into 1992. At this fast food restaurant, I quickly moved from assistant manager to general manager. But the pay was neither what I had been led to believe it would be, nor what was needed for our family. Within a year, I realized I should find employment where the pay is better. By this time, March 1992, I was living in our new manufactured home sitting on a hilltop surrounded by our six acres, which had been purchased three years before, while we were still living in San Jose. Upon moving to Colfax in October 1990, we placed our San Jose home up for sale. It stayed that way for nearly six months, and a couple of price reductions later, it sold. The terms of the sale, which included a bloom payment in the future, were, were not ideal for us, but we, we had to get rid of the house. It was then that we could begin to develop our property. 
This included the installation of a manufactured home on a foundation, hooking up the well, putting in a septic system, and paving the driveway. In order to save money, we built the garage and deck ourselves. In in late September 1991, after living in an apartment in Colfax for the past 11 months, we moved into our new house. To this setting, we add one more element, the adoption of a baby boy. We had adopted Matthew, our oldest son, now just turning six, from South Korea in 1986 at the age of 10 weeks. But the process for the second adoption had taken nearly three years. In January 1992, we finally received an assignment of a healthy baby boy due to arrive at any time. It was during Matthew's sixth birthday party that the phone call came. Our new infant son, Mark, would be arriving in two days at the Los Angeles airport. That call came 15 minutes after Matthew had sustained a severe cut to the corner of his right eye while the kids were trying to knock down a pinata. The cut would later heal without stitches. Mark was to arrive on Wednesday, April 1st at 9.30 a.m. Our plan was to leave our house late the night before, drive nonstop to L.A., get Mark, (laughs) then drive back. I had to take the day off work, not an easy thing to do, since the inventory is done the first of each month. Now, for comet hunting, the month of March had only four clear mornings. I had searched for comets on the previous three opportunities, so now, on the morning of March 31st, with the skies mostly clear, I decided to hunt more of the morning sky. I also realized (laughs) that being awake at this time of the morning would allow me to be tired enough near the end of the day to get a couple of hours of sleep before leaving for L.A. So I got dressed and went out the back door to the deck in the awaiting telescope. I had not yet built the roll-off roof observatory, so I did my comet hunting from the back deck. The instrument I used that morning, well, it wasn't my best comet hunting scope. It was designed and built in 1989 with the hope that with it I could cover a lot of sky and see faint nebulous objects such as comets. In practice, however, I could not see faint objects, just the bright ones, all the messe objects, and and not much else. However, the wide field of view, 3 degrees, and low power, 20.5 magnification, allowed me to sweep the sky rapidly. This telescope was built into a plywood box measuring four foot long and one foot wide and deep. This was mounted with pipe fittings onto the same pipe mount pedestal I used for my other instruments. Using surplus optics, I built it cheaply with the final cost of under $150. The main lens is the same type of 5-inch surplus lens that I use for the large binoculars. 
The telephoto lens weighs 22 pounds and consists of five elements. The front lens measures 6.1 inches across. The eyepiece is a brass one I bought for $25 at the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference in 1987. Now, the eastern sky was cloudy when I stepped outside at 2.55 on the morning of March 31st. So I swung the telescope to the northern sky and swept the polar region. An hour later, the eastern sky had cleared. I finished sweeping the polar regions, and I had less than 40 minutes of dark sky left. With no radio on, the scene was quiet and dew was forming on the deck. So I swung the scope to the eastern sky, and I began sweeping there for comets. I made perhaps six sweeps over the next 12 minutes. At 4.07 a.m., shortly after I began my next sweep, a fuzzy object entered the field, and it looked an awful lot like a comet. Not only did it not look like a cluster or galaxy, but there were no clusters or galaxies in the area to confuse with comets. So I knew in a second that this was a comet. It had been nearly four years since I'd found my previous comet. My next step was to determine the exact position so I could report the new object to the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. I took out my maps and proceeded to plot the position on the maps. From this, I could measure the coordinates. I then made a large-scale sketch of the comet in reference to the background stars. The comet should show motion in respect to the stars within a half an hour. After a half an hour, I determined that the comet was moving slowly to the northeast, less than a degree per day. I also called my wife out to look at it. By 6 a.m., I had talked to Dr. Brian Marsden of the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory and reported the comet. I then went back to bed, only to be awakened 20 minutes later by a phone call from Dr. Marsden. He wanted to know if I had covered the same area in the previous few days. I had not. He then mentioned that a report of a possible comet had arrived at his office three or four days ago. Apparently, a Japanese amateur astronomer named Zuneki Tanaka had reported to the Tokyo Observatory that he had photographed a cometary object moving at four degrees a day a full week before. He had discovered it visually, but he also then took a photograph of it. The Tokyo Observatory had not followed up on the observations, both because of poor weather and because the object was reportedly moving so unbelievably fast that it would be hard to locate again. Dr. Marsden mentioned that Tanaka's position and direction of travel lined up with my position. But the match could only occur if the comet was moving about a degree a day. The world was to wait until the next day to confirm the motion and existence of the comet. Meanwhile, I had many things to do. After a couple hours of sleep, I drove to Grass Valley for an interview with someone concerning employment with Little Caesar's Pizza.
After an hour-long interview, I drove to Auburn to Burger King. Even though it was my day off, I had to complete a few schedules and conduct some of the month-end inventory. Next, it was back up to the house to pack for our trip to L.A. Following dinner and an hour-long nap, we were up at 11 p.m. and on our way by 11.30. Now, confirming the comet would have been easy from Koufax, but now I was on the road, packing only some maps, a tripod, and 20 by 80 binoculars. I drove the first leg of the journey while Laura and Matthew slept. By 3.45, we had reached Kettleman City along Highway 5. We pulled a few miles off the freeway, and I quickly set up the binoculars. Clouds had been moving in and were beginning to cover the part of the sky where the comet was. By time I had set up, the comet's position was clouded out, and I did not see it. At Valencia, California, we stopped at a Burger King from where I phoned Dr. Marsden from the pay phone there. He reported that Alan Hale had observed the comet and that it was moving as I had suggested. Alan Hale was asked by the Smithsonian to help confirm it, and in fact he did. More information from Japan revealed that Tanaka had also visually observed the comet on March 24th, and seen no apparent motion during 25 minutes of observation. The conclusion was made that the object that he saw was the same object I had seen. With that, the comet was named Comet Tanaka Makholtz 1992D. The letter D means it was the fourth comet to be recovered or discovered this year. We continued on to the L.A. airport, this time with Laura driving. Traffic slowed us for the last 50 miles. We were arrived at the airport early at 9.05. We went to terminal number two. This was where the flight was to arrive. But it had arrived early and we were too late to meet our greeter. He had already gone into customs to help our son and his escort. It was 9.50 when he emerged with our son in arms. Within a half an hour, we left the airport, and we went to Manhattan Beach, where we ate a picnic lunch and rested. By noon, we were on our way home. We arrived home at 9.30 p.m., and I got some sleep before observing the comet the next morning. Later that day, I received a job offer from Little Caesar's Pizza, which I accepted. The comet's path took it northward through the morning sky and under the North Star. In mid-June, it entered the evening sky. It outburst in brightness on May 12th, becoming as bright as magnitude 7. It was close to the sun on April 22nd at 1.26 astronomical units, and the path that it's on means it will never return to the inner solar system again. This was my fifth comet discovery, my first one from Koufax, California. I had searched for 760 hours since my last find in August 1988. You can find all of my comet discovery stories with photos on my website, donmockles.com. The next one that I will discuss will be in six or seven weeks, 
my third comet discovery in 1986. To pick up where I started earlier about the Messe Marathon. Now as I write this, it is Monday morning. It's been a long night. My wife came to bed about 1.30 and said that the wind has picked up from the north. My telescope was set up about 60 feet south of the shop, somewhat exposed to the wind. So I got up at 2 o'clock and went out to move the telescope to immediately south of the shop where there is no wind. And I resumed the Messe Marathon. Last night, I found those 66 objects by memory. And it's easy to do that when you can see the nearby guide stars and see some of the Messe objects in the finder. And those objects are easy to see through the telescope. None of that was happening here. That's because of the bright moon in the sky. So I went to my star atlas to help me find and see some of these morning objects. I thought, well, this is something like urban astronomy, the bright moon brightening the sky considerably. M83, a galaxy not far from the moon, was difficult, but I saw it. Then on through to attempt to find the rest of the 110 objects. My last three objects would be M72, M73, and M30. The high winds were blowing dust, and this limited my visibility. Therefore, M72 and M73 were especially difficult. I kept staring at the area in which they are in until finally I did see them. M30 had not yet risen, and it was already twilight. High clouds had come in from the north, and the dust in the air would have made it difficult to get anywhere near M30. So my final count for the night was 109 of the 110 objects. I have now completed 53 Messe marathons in the last 43 years. And this is the 22nd time that I've seen 109 objects in one night. The moon will be better placed for the Messe Marathon this week. And this weekend, Saturday, March 26th, Sunday, March 27th, is perhaps the best opportunity to run the marathon. The following weekend, April 2nd and 3rd, works too. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? Listen to the Actual Astronomy Podcast, episode 204, to hear me talk about the Messe Marathon. And do the Messe Marathon this week. And see the crescent moon and some planets next Monday morning. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 116, for March 23, 2022. I'm Don Mockholtz. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmockholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail.com. Once again, that is dontheastronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing. I'll be back next week 
for another episode of Looking Up with Don. More Messier Marathon talk. Plus, I'll tell you about a new job, astronomically related, that I now have. And my comet hunting has hit a significant milestone in the number of hours. Here is a hint. The number of hours of comet hunting I have now completed is a single digit followed by three zeros. Can you guess the digit? All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.